On Thursday, at Isabel's funeral, Brittany sang the old and once familiar The Holy City. It was one of Isabel's favorites. In fact, it was the favorite of a lot of people of past generations, and many in this generation. It was my mother's favorite, too. If, if The Holy City ever came on the radio or television, silence was commanded in the house. Now, I was one of several people on Thursday morning who sang along with Brittany. Not, not out loud, but we, we at least sang in our hearts. And I hadn't heard the song in years, but the words came back to me. Now, The Holy City isn't like so many songs about the end and the after. It's not sweet or syrupy. In fact, it's thoroughly based on Scripture. The last verse comes right from the last chapters of the book of Revelation. And once again, the scene was changed. New earth there seemed to be. I saw the holy city beside the tideless sea. The light of God was on its streets. The gates were open wide. And all who would might enter. And no one was denied. No need of moon or stars by night or sun to shine by day. It was the new Jerusalem that would not pass away. That's Revelation chapter 21. And I only realized this on Thursday, how closely the author, Stephen Adams, stuck to the story. From the sunshine and songs of Palm Sunday to the shadows and darkness of Good Friday, and then to the vision of the same world that put Jesus on the cross, redeemed and made new. Adam seemed to have understood that there's no sense trying to elaborate or embellish or explain something that already challenges our imaginations, something like God's promise and gift of new life and new creation. Now, in Jesus' time, there's a widespread popular belief that when God's time for the world runs out, all the dead will rise. Just like in our time, there are a lot of ideas of what that will look like. The scribes and Pharisees represent the majority view on the matter. Another sect called the Sadducees don't adhere to that orthodoxy. Or it's better to say that the Sadducees believe they hold the true faith and they don't uphold any oral traditions or interpretations of the laws of God and Moses. If it isn't on the page, it is not to be believed. Now, the Pharisees are middle-class men. The Sadducees are aristocrats and high priests. So they can afford to be strict and particular because they don't have to deal with the, the dreary day-to-day -day choices and compromises that the common people face. They say, and they're right, there's nothing in their Bible, the first five books of ours, nothing that says explicitly there will be a resurrection. Nothing explicit. And they don't believe in reading behind the words or between the lines. So in our gospel story today, Jesus teaches in the temple court. He's already been there for a couple of days. 
These are his last days in Jerusalem. And like a, a traveling rabbi, he sets up court in the temple courtyard, and people come to hear what he has to say. And the authorities of the temple come to check him out, to see if he should be there, to see what his source is, what is the authority that he cites. And after some tense encounters and pointed questions and razor-sharp answers, some Sadducees show up to take their poke at Jesus and at the common people around him. Now, you may think that their story about seven brothers for one bride is silly, and I agree. It was, it's probably told with a smirk or even a sneer. On the high school debating team, we learned a technique called reductio ad absurdum. You know, you take some point in your opponent's view and you stretch it out until it's laughable, until it's silly. You go, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, ha! And so this is what they're doing. And there's a popular story that Jesus and some of the other people might recognize about a woman named Sarah whose husbands all die on their wedding night. The Sadducees might know it too, but their version is built on a law about marriage that says if a man dies before he fathers a son, his brother must marry the widow and produce an heir for the dead sibling's sake. Now, the woman has no say in the matter, no life of her own, really. She's the necessary vessel owned by her husband. So the Sadducees want to know if there will be a resurrection, all of this woman's spouses will rise with her. Who will she belong to? Jesus takes the question seriously. And he talks about the kind of life the risen will live, a life that doesn't include marrying or giving in marriage. Jesus goes on and gives them a taste of their own medicine. He bases a case for resurrection on the tense of a verb that's part of the name God reveals to Moses at the burning bush. No one would build a theological argument on such a weak foundation, except maybe a Sadducee. It also struck me on Thursday, as I mouthed those words that Brittany sang so well, that our hope as Christians is not about a spiritual ascension to somewhere beyond the clouds, our hope is about transformation, recreation, resurrection, all of which are God's gifts to us. If we only think of resurrection as something vaguely spiritual, then we have to stop and ask, will I still be me? Will God just throw away so much of me that is so much of me? And if we only think of resurrection as the reanimation of a corpse, the restoration of what was, where's the hope in that? The Sadducees can only see, can only imagine more of the same, the known, the safe. And if they're wrong and there will be a resurrection, then 
Questions like who a woman belongs to will have to be settled because as far as they can see, the old rules will still apply. Now, when Jesus talks about the life of the risen, he's reflecting another popular belief. People are as fascinated with angels in Jesus' day as people in our part of the world were just a few years ago. But biblical angels come and go like this. They also have bodies, voices, names, identities. They're so much more than beams of light, whispers on the wind. They're formidable beings, not fluffy cherubs riding rainbows. But the old rules won't apply in the new creation. Now, okay, have any of you ever met a genuine heaven-sent angel, messenger from God? Have you heard a story about one visiting lately? I've never seen an angel. I've only ever met one person who claims that he literally saw an angel standing beside the Christmas tree in his boyhood home in Germany. He was sure that he'd seen an angel, but I've never seen an angel. When we talk about angels today, we talk about angelic visitations coming in human form. The right person comes along when we need help. So let's take Jesus' words about the risen life, the life after death being angelic, to mean that in the new life, we won't be hemmed in as we are now by time and mortality. We won't be anchored to geography. Now that raises a question. Will we be able to fly? Let's leave that one alone for now and expect to be surprised or maybe disappointed. We put our faith in God. We trust in God for both this life and the next. And we can live this life as children of the resurrection, daughters and sons of Jesus' resurrection. We can't build a, a, a clear and comprehensive description of what comes at the end, the world's end or your, de your death or mine. The New Testament offers us a host of images, some of which seem to conflict they don't fit together, and yet Christians have tried over the centuries to try and to fit together and make a picture, make something that they can get their minds around. And Christians have so often argued and still argue today over the when and the how and what things will look like. But the more we get caught up in those details, the more we become like the Sadducees. Now for me, I can say the last words of the Apostles' Creed with faith and hope. I know some people swallow those words, they struggle with those words. I say them with faith and hope, but I don't presume to know what the resurrection of the body or the life everlasting will look like. I believe that what I will see and what I will be when I close my eyes to this life and open my eyes in the next will be a surprise. That's good enough for me. The vision of the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem from the book of Revelation, 
and Stephen Adams' song are wonderful. But will we see that vision fulfilled in the last detail? If so, when will we see it? The questions never end. But we can see clearly in the visions and the dreams and the speculations of prophets and apostles and seers what God's intention for us and everything that God has created is. And you know, I think the most important words in Revelation chapter 21 or in the holy city and the pinnacle of the book of Revelation actually are these words. And all who would might enter and no one was denied. That is God's will. And we can live it and follow it in the here and now. Our great-grandparents in faith often said that this life is preparation for the next. And they thought that meant keeping their records up there clear by keeping their noses and their hands clean here, obeying all the rules and enforcing humility any time pride or joy threatened to break out. At times... Christians in past generations did deserve the description of being too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. But we are already children of God and children of Jesus' resurrection. We can live this life in the light of the next with hope and with joy and love. We can safely leave eternity in God's hands and live the risen life now. And we can walk through the valley of the shadow with confidence and face death with sure hope. Amen. Glory to God.